We've been talking the last number of weeks about expectations. Now, some expectations make sense. If you'd walked in today and there were no chairs in the room, we're all sitting on the floor, that would have been kind of awkward. And if you'd said, this isn't what I was expecting, that would be okay. And there's other kinds of expectations that are good to have. When you're driving down the freeway, you sort of expect the person in the lane next to you to not suddenly veer into your lane. Um, You expect the bridges that you cross on the freeway to not fall down. So there, there are certain expectations that are good to have. But as John has been showing us over the last number of weeks, expectations have a way that there's a point where instead of helping us, they start to hold us down. Instead of expanding our vision, you know, the expectation that a bridge won't fall down allows me to drive confidently across the bridge. But sometimes the expectations go the other way, and they begin to be fences. They begin to be walls. And and again, some of that we just do sort of intuitively. We do it because if I know what to expect in a situation, the kind of chaos that's always out there in the world, I don't have to worry about that. And so it's nice to know what to expect. But then when we start to put those expectations on others, and when we start to put expectations on God, we've seen over the last several weeks just how debilitating that is, about how that cuts us down. It disenables us. And moreover, it cuts us off from what God really wants to be able to do in our lives. That the basic expectations that we need from day to day Again, instead of being something empowering like a bridge, end up being walls. They end up being things that hold us in, that hold us back, that keep us away from what God wants. They become a boundary. And then we discover after a while that when we try to break out of those expectations, we can't. That what we thought was a door turns out to be locked. And we get stuck. And that's what we find out. is that the door is locked. And what John has been describing over the last number of weeks is is the way that expectations lock the door between us and the life that God wants us to have. And so along the way, we begin to be ruled, and we get that voice in our head that this can't happen, this won't happen, this will never happen, I can't do this, I won't do this, I shouldn't do this. And you've heard that voice, right? Each of us has that voice that holds us back when it's time to move into something new. Well, this morning, we want to talk about how to add another voice, to add Jesus' voice to break up our expectations and to move us into a world where the boundaries are far out and God is able to do far more than we can possibly imagine. There's a famous passage in Revelation where Jesus is talking about precisely this dynamic. You may have memorized this. You may have even learned this to a little song when you were a little kid. But in in Revelation 3, Jesus is speaking to Christians everywhere. He says, you know what? I'm standing at the door, and I am knocking. Knocking, and and repeatedly. And he says, look, if you will, well, here's what he says. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in, and we'll eat together, and you can enjoy the incredible life that I have in mind for you. So that's another voice. Beyond the voice that says, you can't do it, it won't happen, it shouldn't happen, this won't work, is another voice accompanied by knocking from Jesus that says, if anyone hears my voice and listens to my voice rather than those other voices that you've accumulated in your head, 
And some of those are because there's people in your life that are telling you that along the way as well. Sometimes they're wise people. Sometimes they're people that don't mean well for you. But if you will listen to my voice, I'm going to come in and break, go through that door. Do you notice this, though? This last phrase, if you listen to my voice and open the door, you notice this? That the door that closes us in, the way expectations become a boundary, turns out that door is locked from the inside. We have the capacity to open that door. It's not an act of grace. It's not an act of strength. It's just an act of awareness on our part to realize that the way that expectations close us in and hem us in, that's something that we do. And when we lock ourselves in, it's because we've locked the door. And if we just listen to Jesus' voice, the door will open. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, what Jesus is describing is a feast. And that's repeatedly in the Gospels and in Revelation, the very best thing that he can bring us. So how do we get to that feast? How do we get beyond a life that is hemmed in by our expectations and into this abundant life that Jesus wants to give us? How do we open the door that we've locked ourselves? How do we get there? I want to suggest that there are three habits, three mentalities, three important words, and you can add just another bunch of big words in there if you want. Three things. That if we can allow partner with God to make these part of how we look at the world, the door will not only open, but stay open. And the abundant life that Jesus wants to give us will be available. And those three things are the ability to have imagination, to be surprised by what God is doing, and to wonder at what God is doing. Now, a lot of times, these three things just get labeled faith, which it's true, this is what faith looks like when it's being exercised, but I've I've found that for most folks, faith is such an abstract thing that it's hard to get a hold of. This is what it looks like in real life. The ability to exercise holy imagination, the ability to and willingness to be surprised by what God is doing, and then when you see God at work, to be able to stand back and just wonder at what he has done. All of those are aspects of what faith really looks like in action. So we're going to look at those, and for each of these, we're going to look at what, for most of you, will be a familiar story. And if they're not, these are stories that as you hang around and as you, as you read the Bible and as God's story becomes more part of your story, these stories are sort of tent poles, you know, that hold up the whole big tent of the Bible. So these are ones that will probably be familiar to a lot of you along the way, but really powerful stuff. So the first of these is imagination, and this is set the way that we see imagination being exercised, or in one case not being exercised, is when the people of Israel were first set free from Egypt. And as we pick up the story in Exodus 13, the plagues, if you're familiar with the story, have already happened. So the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. They cried out to the Lord. The Lord sent Moses to kind of have a showdown with Pharaoh and sent a lot of wonders or miracles or plagues on the Egyptians, until finally the Egyptians were willing to set the Israelites free, and they left. And so as we pick up the story here in chapter 13, the Israelites are leaving. But the Lord knows something about the Israelites. It said that God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said if they faced war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So if you can imagine where Egypt is, it's kind of at the lower right corner of the Mediterranean 
they're going to Canaan, which is up here. So the quickest way would just be to go like this. But there were Philistine fortresses along there. And so instead, what the Lord does is he takes them through the wilderness. He says, I'm going to lead them through the desert road or the wilderness road up toward the Red Sea. And they went out ready for battle. Now, do you you notice this? From the Lord's point of view, the Israelites, if they see the Philistines, they're going to collapse and fall apart. From the Israelites' point of view, they're ready for battle. Now, you've probably seen this, and it's much easier to see this in others than it is to see it in yourself. You know, the person says, I'm ready, I got it handled. And you look at them and go, oh boy, I hope not. Um, You know, so it's easy to move into a situation where you're confident. And this this is what's going on, is that the Israelites have just seen God do amazing things on their behalf. He's just defeated Pharaoh, defeated the armies of Egypt, defeated the gods of Egypt. The Lord has literally redone the cosmos, the physics of their, the way they understood the world, on Israel's behalf to set them free from the Egyptians. So it's natural that they would go out with a lot of expectation and a lot of confidence. But the Lord knows that if they face their first battle, they're just going to crumple. They're not going to make it. And, and the reason is, is these are people that were born slaves. And their parents were born slaves. And their parents before them and their parents were before them. The Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. So each of these folks, down to their bones, they knew how to be a slave. They didn't know how to be free people. And what the Lord knew, at the first problem, they were going to panic. They were going to bail out, and they were going to go back to their slave sensibilities. Again, this is about imagination. The Lord knew that at this point, the Israelites couldn't imagine anything other than how to be a slave. They had a little bit of bravado right now. Oh, yeah, we handled the Egyptians. Sort of like the guy who never plays and exults that his team just thumped the other team. That's what it, that's what it was like. And the Lord knew that they weren't there. But he knew that there was a way to get them beyond this. And so what happens as they arrive at the Red Sea is the Lord once again hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you can see it happening here in the photograph. The Lord speaks to Pharaoh, and he, and he says, Look, go get the Israelites. They're clowning you. And so there's this conversation. Suddenly Pharaoh and his guys are like, Hey, why did we let the Israelites go? We're the biggest guys on the block. We should go get them. Yeah, we should go get them. We should go get them. And so they do. So Pharaoh and his armies head out, and they have 600 chariots. If you read this in context... Exodus really slows down to emphasize the armaments of Pharaoh. And it's just massive. I mean, 600 doesn't sound a lot to us. We're used to dealing with larger numbers. But 600, these, these chariots that are mentioned here are the equivalent of like that, the super-duper attack helicopters that our military has that we only have a couple hundred of. They had 600 of these. And they had extra chariots. These were absolutely undefeatable, indefensible and any in or un that you can imagine, that's what Pharaoh's chariots were. Um, and just, by the way, somebody thought I was making up these Legos. I'm, I'm not, actually. There's a source that we, we use called the Brick Testament that uh, we're using it with their permission along the way. So this is, this is where it happens. So these, are actually, these are not actual photographs of what happened. These are Legos. I don't want anybody to be disappointed. But can you imagine, you're an Israelite, all you've known literally of the Egyptians is the the heel of their boot and the end of their whips. And now you're free, and suddenly 
the most powerful, intense, undefeatable army that you can possibly imagine is bearing down on you. How would you respond? Well, this is how the Israelites respond. They screamed. They yelled. They went crazy. And they cried out to the Lord, and they cried out to Moses. And this is how the text described it. They looked, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. And they were terrified. Now, I have those two words um, highlighted because this passage is kind of riffing off of those two words. In Hebrew, the verb to fear or to be terrified and the one to look or to see sound almost alike. Um, If you look at the burning bush episode, I think we talked about this a while ago. Um, Moses sees the burning bush, he yares, and because of what he sees, he yaras, he's afraid. So here, they see, they yare, and because of what they see, they yara. There's this interesting tension in the, in the Hebrew Bible, and, 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 it, and it fits in our own lives as well, that we're very often paralyzed by what we see. And you see what's wrong. And, and something, there's something about us, and I think it's just programmed into us to get out of scary situations better. But have you noticed that it's far, when you're in a scary situation, it's far easier to see what's wrong, to see what's bad, to see where the trouble is, than to see sometimes the way out? You ever gotten just stuck? All you could see is the wrong thing, the bad thing, the difficult thing. You can't see, even see the obvious way out sometimes. I mean, that, we're just sort of wired for that. So imagine... Somebody that's only ever been a slave and sees this, of course they're freaking out. Of course they're afraid that what they see is giving them fear. But what they need in this case is what we're talking about here, and it's what we need as well. And that's that sense of faith that manifests itself as imagination. At this point, the Israelites could not possibly imagine another way out of their situation other than just going back to Egypt. In fact, that's what they do. They confront Moses and they say, what? There weren't enough graves in Egypt? You had to bring us out here to die? Let us go. Let us go back to Egypt and we'll go back to serving them and it'll all be okay. But Moses gets it. Now, previously, the first time earlier on in Exodus when the Israelites tried to bail out, Moses said, you know, I think you're right. And he went and chewed the Lord out. This time he doesn't do this. This time He gets what the Lord is doing. I think Moses has some of that holy imagination. And he can, with the Lord's help, he can already see where this is going to go. And so he says to them, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance what the Lord will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. So there's those two words again. Don't yara. Don't be afraid. And then he repeats the verb to see three times. He's obviously riffing off of that and wants him to get it. I know what you see scares you, but you need to be able to see something else. You need to be able to see how the Lord is in this situation. And you can't see that with your eyes. You're going to require the kind of imagination that comes from faith to be able to see where the Lord is at work in this particular situation. And if you can, these Egyptians that you see, you'll never see again. And so this is what happens. The Lord tells Moses to strike the edge of the sea with his rod, and he does. And the sea stands up like two walls. The Israelites go through, men, women, child, all of their stuff. They go through on dry land and come out on the other side of the sea. The Egyptians see this, and they say, ha, we've got them. They're walking. They have little kids. We've got these super awesome chariots. 
Let's go get him. And so they charge into the sea. And when they do, it turns out that the water that was, the land that was dry for the Israelites becomes muddy for the Egyptians. And they get stuck. And they fall into confusion. And they start to freak out. But what's interesting is they can see already what the Israelites couldn't. The Egyptians say to each other, the Lord is fighting for Israel. And implication, we're done for. And they are. Once the Israelites get through, the Lord tells Moses to strike the edge of the sea with his rod, and he does, and the water comes back, and the Egyptians all drown. And actually, when the Lord said, these Egyptians that you won't see, that you see today, you won't see again, actually they do see him, sort of. The text points out that at the end, their bodies wash up on the beach, and they do see the Egyptians that way. This is a complete victory. You know, they, they, they ran up the score, and they spiked the football. At the end. But look at what the Lord said again. Stand firm. Don't be afraid in what you see. He was calling them to imagine. Imagine that the world that you understand how it works, that's not the only way it works. The world that conditioned you by slavery and by birth to think that this is all that is possible. The Lord was saying through Moses, I want you to imagine something else that's even better than you can think of. And that imagination is a kind of faith. And the Israelites exercised that. As they walked through the sea, that had to be a scary thing, and came out on the other side, they were beginning to imagine another thing. See, the thing is, guys, that each of us are just as conditioned. We've not been, I don't think any of us have been slaves. But the New Testament, you know, picks up that language and talks about how we've been slaves to sin. And that's, that's an experience that's common to all of us. I know some folks have struggled with addiction. And when you're stuck in an addiction, that feels like enslaving. That any difficult and very strong experience has the ability to conform and change the way that we think. And the way that the Lord wants to help us break out of that is to give us this gift of faith that's exercised as imagination. Imagination. So what it really does in the end is something like this. What imagination does is it makes a way when there is no way. When the Israelites arrived at the edge of the sea, there was the sea on one side and the fiercest, most difficult-to-imagine army on the other side. There was literally no way forward for them. And the Lord made a way. And as we can begin to exercise faith that looks like imagination, similar things will begin to happen in our life. There have been three instances in my life. Some are relatively minor. One was, two were very significant. So four, four times, two kind of big, two not so much. Where it wasn't the Red Sea and Egypt for me, but it was, I think this is where I need to go, and I can't see any possible way that I can get from here to there. And in each case, the Lord jumped in and provided a way when I thought there was no way. He provided a path when I thought there was no possible path. That where the bridge was out, I looked again, and there was a bridge. And the Lord wants to be able to do that in each of our lives, whether it's crossing Red Seas or finding a cheap rental house in a cheap mark, in an expensive market, um, somewhere in between there. The Lord wants to be able to do that for each of us. And we get there by beginning to imagine. 
The second thing the Lord wants to be able to do is he wants to hit us with surprising things. So imagination helps us in the places where we've been broken, where we've been battered, where we've been conformed and held down. Faith exercises the ability to be surprised, helps us in the places where we think we have it together, where we think we have it down. You you realize that sometimes the areas where we are the strongest are the places where the Lord has the most difficult way into our lives. I'm like this, and I think most people are. I I have a strong tendency, and and in our culture, you're supposed to. It's like you handle your own business, you handle your own stuff. If you need some help, you ask for it. But then you're supposed to get back to handling it yourself. And and I found this to be a very difficult thing for me along the way is, is that the areas where I'm the strongest are the places where God has the most difficult time making his way into my life. Because when I know what's up, I know what's up. I don't need to hear anything else. I, I know, right? And some of you guys are like this too. Um, so there's a guy who was a complete expert at his stuff, and yet it was his ability to be surprised by Jesus that the Lord used to, I think, really remake him. And this guy is a guy named Nicodemus. Um, this is from the first part of the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Nicodemus was, the text tells us, was a Pharisee, which meant he was somebody that took the Bible very, very seriously and, and obedience to the Scriptures very seriously. And the Pharisees were very, in a very good way, hardworking in terms of trying to help the people of Israel live righteous lives and honor the Lord. Um, because they're in conflict with Jesus in the Gospels, we tend to think they're like, you know, mustache-twirling bad guys. But in the very real sense, Jesus and the Pharisees were almost on the same side. Jesus agreed, yeah, people need to be serious about Scripture. They need to be serious about living righteous lives. You guys are just going about it in the wrong way. So Jesus and the Pharisees had the same goals. They just disagreed on how you get there. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and it said he was also a member of Israel's ruling council which meant he was, it was called the Sanhedrin. It was like their parliament. Um, it was about 70 people. So in a country of a couple million people, he was a really big deal guy. And it was his job to be an expert at how God was working. As both a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, it was their job to judge what was going on in Israel and to see if God's at work in that or God's not. And if you remember Jesus' story, you know that the religious officials pretty quickly started to be bothered by what Jesus was doing. That some of what Jesus was doing and saying and the people he was associating with and the way he was going about it, they took that to be taking the people away from God, which is why the officials ultimately had Jesus executed at the end. So Nicodemus is part of that group that ultimately condemned Jesus to death. But at this point... He's willing, he sees something in Jesus, and he thinks, no, I think God is at work in Jesus. And so he comes to him at night. He has to come at night because Jesus is already a controversial figure, and if word gets out that Nicodemus meeting with Jesus, you know, be a big scandal. So he comes to him privately at night and meets up with Jesus. And he asks him this. He says to Jesus, Rabbi, and that's a sign of respect. So this, this shows us, that Nicodemus is not coming up as a heresy catcher. He's not coming up here. He's not asking questions of Jesus to try to trip him up and to get him in trouble. He's asking for instruction. He thinks God is at work in Jesus, but he just can't quite figure out. He just can't see how that's working. 
And so he asked Jesus, he says, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God. Um, I don't know how strong as we are, we is. It might just be him. But he's speaking on behalf of some others. He says, because no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. It's interesting there, the word that's translated signs. In the Old Testament, it's the same word that's used to translate the, the plagues or the wonders that God did in his, against Egypt in, this, in the episode we just looked at. So Nicodemus understands this and comes to Jesus respectfully. And, and he's basically saying, reading between the lines, he's telling Jesus, help me figure this out. With one set of eyes, I know you're from God, from the signs that you're doing. But from the expectations that we have of how God works and the way God works and the way we understand the Scriptures, we can't fit what you're doing with how we understand how God's supposed to work. So can you help me understand this? Can you help me figure this out? That's essentially what Nicodemus is asking Jesus here. And Jesus, I'm not quite sure how kind he is. He gives him this answer. He says, very truly, I say to you, and that's in the Gospel of John, that's Jesus' way of saying, look, what I'm about to say is super important, so, so listen. He says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, at one level, this is not terribly helpful for Nicodemus because Jesus knows what question Jesus... Nicodemus is saying, help me reconcile what you're doing with our traditions, and Jesus doesn't enter into that discussion at all. In fact, he takes him off in another direction. And if you follow along in the text, poor Nicodemus is just, it's just scratching his head. And, and you know how when you're really confused, you get really literal? And he's like, born again. Okay, um, I'm big now. And that happened a long time ago. I don't think I can fit back in there again and do this again. Okay? I mean, he's just, it's like all, all he could think of. Obviously, Jesus is speaking metaphorically here, but Nicodemus can't get this. And then Jesus goes on to explain that, that his kingdom is, is, is spiritual rather than physical. It's not a political kingdom, and so you're going to access that through spiritual means. And so he's really saying to Nicodemus, all of your categories don't really fit here, and you're going to have to wipe all of your categories aside and start thinking in some new ways. And, and friends, I, I want to suggest to a lot of us that that's where we get stuck you know, our, our lives are stuck. We're in a place that's not great. And we think, well, I know it's got to be this. It's got to be this. It's got to be this. And I think a lot of times what the Lord wants to say to us is, hey, you know, the categories you're using to analyze your life, none of them fit. And if you really want me to be at work, you're going to have to just push them all aside. And so that's essentially what he's telling Nicodemus. And I think Nicodemus got it because his response was this. He said, how could this be? Now, remember, this is a man of authority. This is one of the most 70 powerful men in all of Israel who has a very difficult place. And, and he's not just speaking for himself. He's speaking for millions of people at this point. And it would, almost anybody else in Nicodemus's place, if he was confronted with something that was this different and this unexpected, would start to say, no, 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 that, that doesn't work. You know, our traditions say this. The scriptures say this. The Torah clearly says this. You need to reconcile all of those things, Jesus, before we start talking. But instead, Nicodemus is willing to be surprised. And instead, his answer is, how can this be? Nicodemus knows that God is at work. And he knows that if he's really going to follow what God is doing in Jesus, 
he has to be willing to set aside some of his categories that are strong points of his in order to allow God to surprise him, to do something new, to do something that he hadn't imagined yet. And so that's what surprise is. If imagination helps us find a way where there is no way, helps us find a way out of the places where we're stuck and we're weak, the willingness to be surprised by God gives him space to move us out of the places that we've excluded God because of our own strength, because of our own things that we think we have handled. Now, this is why he had to be surprised. This is what Jesus is up to. He says, for God so loved the world. This is John's take after the conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus is done. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, if you've heard anything from the Bible, you've heard this. So this is not a surprising verse for us. But if Nicodemus heard that for the first time, he would have been astounded. This would have been beyond him. The world that that John uses here, cosmos, um, is the word that they use, is everything that is opposed to God. That there was the Lord and there was the world. There was Israel and there was the world. There were God's people and God's purposes and then there was the world. It was the bad guy. And... Of course God loved his people. Of course God loved righteous people. But the idea that God's love is expressed primarily to that of of the cosmos, the world that is arrayed against him, was just stunning to somebody like Nicodemus. And so for him to get what God was doing, not just in Israel but beyond Israel, is that he had to be willing to be surprised. This would have been absolutely surprising to him. So what surprise does in the end is it creates life where there can't be life. It takes adults and has them born again. It takes the world that is implacably opposed to God and by being exposed to God's love allows any who believe in him to become God's people. And if we're not willing to be surprised by God, God is always going to be working beyond the boundaries that we've set up so that we kind of understand the world. And if we're not willing to let him bash those aside and be surprised by that, be surprised by his goodness, be surprised by his grace, be surprised by the extent of his mercy, we are going to miss out where God is going. So when we're broken, when we're hurt, it's imagination that gets us out. It provides a way where there is no way. Where we're feeling strong, it's the willingness to be surprised by God that can break through what our expectations of what God's like used to hold us in and and close off the boundaries of what God can do. But sometimes what God wants to do is so far outside the boundaries, the only thing we can do is wonder, to be amazed, to marvel. And that's the third part of what we're doing. And the place where that's best shown is in the Gospel of Luke. This the verb that's translated wonder gets appears fourteen times in Luke. And in each one it's God's doing an amazing thing. And some of the people are like, we don't like this. But the good people, the people that the book is kind of rooting for, they always marvel, they wonder, they're amazed. That sometimes that's the only appropriate response to what God is doing, is to be amazed. And it begins right at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. If you've read Luke before, you know it starts with the birth story of Jesus. And we're going to be hearing it again next month when Christmas actually starts. Not right now where some people are starting to start it. But anyway... Another point. I like Thanksgiving. I like, I like 
Veterans Day. Let's, let's have those and then move on to Christmas. Anyway, now I'm meddling. Um, so it begins right at the beginning of what we call the Christmas story, where a young woman, Mary, is in her room doing what young girls do in their room, and suddenly an angel appears and speaks to her and says, Hail, a sign of honor that was usually only used in Israel. It was only used for the Romans that they made them use it. And here it's being used by a young girl. Hail Mary. God has favored you greatly. And the angel goes on to say some amazing things. That you are going to be the mother of the Messiah. That God is going to overshadow you. You're going to have a child. And Mary has an appropriate response. She's kind of gobsmacked by this. And she just can't believe it. But what the text says is that she was greatly troubled. Or The word there is just all jumbled up inside. I mean, you're sitting there minding your own business, wondering why that person you friended on Facebook hasn't come back yet, or why they, they, you sent them three texts and they haven't answered your text, and you're about to call them just to get them to answer the text. And suddenly an angel appears and says, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah. And guess what? No guy involved. It's just going to happen. It's, you, got no, you have no categories for this at all. And so she's in turmoil. And then the text says, but this is, this is what's really cool. Most of the time when we're in turmoil, we panic, we get angry, we get scared. Mary wondered. She marveled. She was amazed. For some reason, for somehow, she knew enough about what God was like and the unexpected and amazing ways that God works that she had just the beginning of a place for this. I don't understand this, but I know God is amazing. I don't get this, but I know God is wonderful. I don't begin to get what I'm doing, but I know God is marvelous. And so that's what she responds with. She responds with wonder. Now, the interesting thing about this is this word, like I said, appears a lot in the Gospel of Luke, and it's an affirmative thing. The ability to wonder at what God is doing is a good thing. Normally, in Greek society that the New Testament was written into, men never, ever wanted to wonder at something because it meant you were surprised. And to be a good Hellenistic man, you were supposed to have everything together. Nothing phases you. Nothing surprises you. And a lot of us go in that direction too. We want to have mastery over our lives. We want to have a sense that we know what's going on. And in the end of that, we lose the ability to marvel, to wonder, to be amazed. But Mary didn't. Maybe she just wasn't old enough yet. But it wasn't just Mary. Lots of other people in the Gospel of Luke, including Mary's husband, marvel along the way. Now, you know how the story goes. Jesus is born in a, in a stable in Bethlehem. Um, you know, the Romans were hassling the people, making them go back to their hometowns. There was no room for them to sleep, so they go and stay in this, um, in this feed area. Jesus' first crib is a, a feed box for cows and sheep. Um, shortly thereafter, angels appear and shepherds come to honor. Um, and other animals and stuff like that happen along the way. And then they go home. And eight days later, after Jesus is born, they show up in Jerusalem Ah, here we go. They show up in Jerusalem where Jesus is circumcised. Um, it's in the story. 
um, where Jesus is circumcised. Now, this was, a normal, this was a normal thing that they did. It was a way of, it's analogous to our child dedications. You would do this after eight days. Um, and normally it was a quiet thing. The family would do it. They'd do a few gifts. But as they're in the temple, two people come up and start talking to Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus. They both want to hold the baby. And I remember when our kids were eight days old, I wasn't terribly anxious to hand them off. They're really wobbly at eight days. It's hard to, you don't feel confident holding them, and you're not confident handing them to somebody else. But two people, a, a woman named Anna, or Hannah, as would have been her name, and a guy named Simeon come up, and they both say these words of blessing over Jesus. Simeon especially has been waiting. He says, I have been waiting for this moment forever. His whole life. He's an old guy. He's ready to die. And he says, this child is going to do amazing things. Now, Joseph and Mary already knew this. They'd had more than their share of amazing stuff up to this point. Virgin birth, angels showing up, shepherds at the crib, you know, the crib being a manger, all of that. Now, gosh, we thought we could have a quiet baby dedication, and we can't even have that. And Simeon says these words, which is really powerful. He says, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, now dismiss your servant in peace. He's basically saying, I can go die now. I've seen what I came to see. He says, because my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light of revelation for the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. All of us who've had the privilege of being parents, we have high hopes for our children. Crystal's here with the youngest member of our family, and I know she has high hopes for her child. Um, but to imagine somebody coming up and saying that your, your child is the linchpin of history, that it all matters, on, I mean, a lot of us feel that way, but Jesus actually was. Jesus actually was. And again, most of us would say, oh, no, you're being too kind. Oh, not really. Or, oh, you're very insightful. I think so, too. Now, Joseph and Mary didn't do either of those things. Look at what their response was. They wondered. They marveled. They were amazed at what was said about him. You know, with all the imagination and with all the surprise that they could muster, that still wasn't enough. I mean, what was happening with this eight-day-old baby and all the events that had happened since Jesus' conception were so far out of bounds that they had no way to understand this. All they could do was be amazed. All they could do was wonder. All they could do was marvel. But here's the deal, guys. I want to suggest to you that this was not a one-off thing. That wonder is not an appropriate response just for the parents of Jesus. That if God is at work in our lives in any real way, then we will be amazed. Then we will wonder. Then we will marvel. And if we're not willing to do that, if we're not able to do that, if we're not willing to loosen up enough, then it puts limits on what God can do. So what wonder ultimately does in our life is it gives God space to work. It gives God the room in our hearts. It gives God the room in our perceptions to do anything beyond surprising that we could scarcely imagine. 